Good morning, everybody. Let's open our Bibles, shall we, to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, as we continue in our study of the book of Genesis. Let me have a little show of hands. How many of you, uh, just out of curiosity, have uh, studied Genesis verse by verse really kind of for the first time in this series? Raise your hand. Oh, good. That's awesome. Job security for those of us teaching, for Trav and for me doing this series. It is, um, if you ever go to the chiropractor and have them like straighten you out, you know, you can just, uh, when you read Genesis, this is what happens. It really straightens you out on so many things, on the creation, on the existence of God, on the, on the meaning of the fall of man, on how evil has penetrated the human, the human life, but also the hope of the gospels in the book of Genesis and the whole first 10 chapters, if you remember, are really about how we were created, how we screwed it all up, how it got really, really bad. And then from chapter, actually, that goes through chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, the Lord says, but I'm not done. And he says, I've chosen a man by the name of Abraham. And through his seed, I will rescue the world. Turn to that, and we've done it several times, but I want you to know, it's in chapter 12, so hold your finger there in chapter 21, and turn back to chapter 12 of Genesis, because really Genesis is about how God redeems his world, his fallen world, how it fell, and what God is doing about it, and what he's doing about it is saving it through a person called the seed of Abraham, who comes from a nation that comes miraculously from Abraham and Sarah. And it's chapter 12, the first three verses, it's the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I know that this is redundant for you, but redundancy is helpful in learning. It takes 27 repetitions of a new idea for it to soak in. Did you know that? I'm serious. It does. I don't know who figured it out, but it's... A brand new idea. It takes a long time to settle in. What I want you to understand is that the book of Genesis is not just about the creation. It's about the redemption of the world. And it's the beginning of the plan through which Messiah will come. Begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. The land becomes very important. God drives a stake into the land, into the earth, in time and space, in a place on the earth. And he says, from here, I will change the world. I will bring it back under my control and I will defeat evil from this place. That's this land. Okay. So he draws Abraham, sends him to what we know as the promised land because it's based on the promise of God to a land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will, and your name will be great so that you will be a blessing. Interestingly, as you know, he and Sarah couldn't have kids. And so this was a promise that seemed completely unbelievable. And as the years went by, it seemed even more unbelievable. The longer it takes for the Lord to come through on a promise, the more testing it is for our faith. Is that not the truth? Nevertheless, the Lord said, I'm calling you to trust me. And I will make you an entire nation. Out of you will come a whole nation. And then out of that nation will come a blessing for the whole world. And we know who that is, of course. I will make of you a great nation, he says. And you will be a blessing. The end of verse 2. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, this is a key phrase, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because through this nation, there will come a Messiah. And through that Messiah... Evil will be defeated and death will be defeated. That's just, that's the most amazing thing. And you will not hear it anywhere except in the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed through the scriptures beginning in the book of Genesis. It really sets you straight on the real history of humanity. Now let's go to chapter 21. Beginning in chapter 12 and going to chapter 25 is the account of how the promise begins, the promise of a nation begins. And um, the land is there. But they wait 25 years for the, for the people to start happening. Because Abraham's 100 years old by the time this promise takes place. By the time Isaac comes, Abraham is 100 years old. He was 75 when he got the promise, 100 years old. He lived to 175, so he's kind of middle-aged, you know. 
seriously that it, you got to bear that in mind. Um, still, to wait 25 years for a promise from God with no explanation. 25 years of growing in faith and the way the Lord helped Abraham to grow in faith, the first archetypical man of faith. He's the paradigm of faith. He's used several times in the New Testament. But that growth had to happen over time. And I want to put this correctly. Had to happen over time with unanswered yet prayer. Lord, where's the son? Where's the child? Where's the beginning of this promise? We see the land. We don't own it yet. The Philistines own most of it, the Canaanites. But where are you? What are you going to do? I know what. We'll fix it. We'll make one of our own babies. Remember what happened? Sarah said, I'm tired of waiting. Take Hagar and have a baby with her, she says to Abraham. And Ishmael is born. And the Lord says later, he says, you should have waited for me. It's the record of how Abraham's faith began to grow by being stretched and stretched almost, almost to the breaking point. And people say, my faith is being stretched. I think it's to the breaking point. How will I know if I'm growing in the Lord? And I ask him as a pastor, Are you still trusting the Lord? Yes, I am, but I'm hanging on by my fingernails. That is the feeling of growing in faith. That is the the feeling of growing in faith isn't just Holy Ghost goosebumps. The feeling of growing in faith is the sense of saying, Lord, it's almost too late. Lord, are you, can I trust? Now, what happens in chapter 21 is the beginning of that new promise Uh, Isaac is born he was promised a year before and now they have a date and we talked about that and now he's born in chapter 21 and chapter 21 really is all about Isaac because Isaac is grace in action as the seed God said I will save this world through a miraculous seed that you couldn't have produced it will come through Isaac. He named, God actually names him. Uh, Isaac means laughter. You're going to like this, he says. Through this person will come all the promises. Now, they didn't understand the Messiah. They didn't understand everything except that God said, through this person, all will take place. So what happens in chapter 21 is three real important things. And I'll tell you what they are ahead of time. Then we'll unpack it and we'll go through it, okay? But the first portion is the actual promises fulfilled. Isaac is born. And there's great joy in the household. But then the second portion, beginning in uh, verse 8 and going down through verse 21, there's a, there's a huge crisis. The first is the Lord fulfills the promise of Isaac. He fulfills the promise of Isaac in the first seven verses. And it's just an amazing reality that God brings about, okay? Because they couldn't have kids, and God waited till they couldn't have kids on purpose so that they would know his salvation has to be based on a miracle, not on what humans do. We'll get back to that over and over again here. So the first seven verses, God says, I'm fulfilling the promise of Isaac. But then in the next several verses, he focuses the promise through Isaac. Now, it's still about Isaac, even though Ishmael's in the story. And what we're going to see is that the Lord says, I'm giving you the son. He's the only one I'm going to use, and I'm going to remove Ishmael, not because Ishmael was evil or anything, but he's not the promise. So I'm going to remove Ishmael from the clan so that the promise is clearly through the miracle boy, Isaac. Okay, that's the, that's the next thing that happens in, the, in this section. And then the last thing that happens in the section, and we'll see what takes place, is there's this... Um, Abraham has a covenant with, with Abimelech, who's the king of the Philistines. And Abraham, there's, a, there's a, a perpetual, it doesn't actually last more than a couple generations, but it, an agreement is made so that Abraham can live in the promised land safely. You say, how's that about Isaac? Isaac is the next generation, and Isaac lives in that place, Beersheba, where that takes place. So God says, I'm giving you Isaac, I'm giving you only Isaac, and I'm making sure Isaac has a place in the land. 
Am I going too fast? Do you guys understand this? Because sometimes people read these accounts and they, and they don't see the connections between them. And, and they just read them as individual stories, you know. Um, but that's, there's a flow here. It's this promise of grace through the line of Abraham down to Isaac that includes the land and the promise alone without human effort, which Ishmael represents, and all built on the promise of God. Okay. You're thinking, okay, we can close in prayer. No, we're going to read the whole thing. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, by the way. I have those underlined, as he said, as he promised. It's the mark of a person who knows God that they trust what he says. Even when they're stretched beyond their imagination. He said, he, he came, he did what he said he was going to do. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which uh, God had spoken to him. God told him it was going to happen and it did. Abraham called the name of his son was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. God named Isaac. Um, there's a few points in the scriptures where someone is so important that God is the one who names them rather than the normal uh, pattern, which would be the father naming him. God says, I'm, this is very specific. This is under my control. I'm giving him the name. And he gave him the name Isaac before he was born. So Abraham obeys the Lord and calls him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old in obedience to the covenant. Remember, the covenant was um, the Lord said, if you belong to me and you're in covenant with me, then the males of your clan will be circumcised. And again, Abraham obeys. Um, as the Lord had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter. Now, that's what Isaac's name means. So there's a play on words in two different places or three different places here. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me (laughs) instead of at me. See, this is the situation. She has been childless all this time. And when Hagar got pregnant and Sarah didn't, Hagar laughed at Sarah. Now Sarah says, God has vindicated me. Now people will laugh with me. It's really interesting that God chose the name laughter for this incredibly serious promise that he makes. And he calls it laughter. He calls Isaac laughter. And here you have Sarah going, <laughs> this, this is so cool. I just, I just was able to hold yesterday morning my brand new great-grandson. Just the sweetest little guy, you know. Um, and uh, Logan and Lexi, Logan, my oldest grandson, and his beautiful wife Lex, and they had this beautiful little Little boy. His name is Maverick, 21. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. 21 and a half inches, seven and a half pounds. I know. That's all the ladies want to know that. And I'm holding this little tiny dude, and I thought of this passage because I'm studying it, getting ready to share it with you. And here's Sarah laughing. You know, oftentimes when the baby's born, they will simply take this little, this little one and lay the tiny one right on the chest of the mom right after the birth. Okay. They cut the cord and they just lay the warmth of that little one right on top. That's Sarah and she's laughing and saying, (laughs) look at this. It's amazing. It's a great moment. And you know what? It's amazing that God chose the name laughter for one of the most serious things that he does on the face of the earth, the beginning of the salvation of the universe. And he calls it la- he calls him laughter, and I got it. And I'm only suggesting this, so save your cards and letters, but and your emails and texts too. And if you disagree, fine. But I think that when we get there, when we're with the Lord, we're going to laugh. I think we're going to laugh. I think we're going to say, <laughs> "Look." At the salvation of God. Look 
at how wonderful this is. Why was I ever worried when I was back at TCF? (laughs) When I was back in Oregon? When I was back when we were praying for new administrations across the land and they didn't all happen? When I was back worried about my destiny in this age? Why did I... Why did I worry so much? Lord, this is amazing. I'm just laughing. It's just so wonderful. I think the fact that he calls this this first seed, he calls him laughter. I think that's really gracious, really loving, really important. And notice Abraham does obey. But he obeys because he trusts God, not in order to be blessed, but because he's been blessed by grace. But he does obey. And that's how you can tell that he loves the Lord. Anyway, so laughter and the covenant now moves through Isaac. However, all is not joyful. The next thing that takes place is that he, the Lord focuses the promise through Isaac rather than Ishmael. And in order to do that, what he does is he uses a family crisis in order to remove Ishmael. And I'll tell you ahead of time why. It's because Ishmael would have said, I'm the firstborn here. I'm the one that gets the name. I should be the one that gets the inheritance. And this little dude isn't, he shouldn't get everything. I'm the firstborn. I'm the firstborn. And what this does is it causes a huge crisis. And Sarah recognizes the crisis. And, and um, Ishmael, who is at this time, what we're moving three years into the future from verse uh, 7 to verse 8, when uh, Isaac is being weaned, and they would wean their uh, kiddos at around two to three years, their feeling was, if you, the longer you can nurse them, the stronger they will be. That was, that was the way it was thought of in the ancient world. The longer you can nurse them, the stronger they will be. So two or three years is, was when they were weaned. Now, what happens is Ishmael looks at this. He feels the threat to his own sovereignty, and he mocks the word laughter is used for what he does toward Isaac. And it all happens at a big party. What an awkward family situation, right? Have you ever had an awkward family situation? It happens at a party where uh, Isaac is being weaned. Everybody's celebrating, and... Ishmael mocks him, the Hebrew term laughter is used. Sarah sees it, realizes what's going on, and she's not just being petulant. She may have been petulant, I don't know. She's not just being shallow. She realizes this is a competition between these two sons, and only one of them can really inherit. So this is about who gets to be the firstborn. And the Lord makes a decision, and and Abraham's upset. We'll read it in a sec, but Abraham's upset, but the Lord says... This is the way it was designed to be, and this is the way it has to be, so trust me. And he uses a family crisis. Isn't that amazing? He uses a completely dysfunctional family crisis in order to bring about something that he had designed to happen, which is good to remember. So, well, by the way, there's, not, there's no such thing in the Bible as a, a truly functional family. I don't know if you know that. There's not a family in the whole Bible who could ever be on the cover of Focus on the Family magazine. And, um, and that's a wonderful ministry. I'm not making fun of it. Focus on the family is a great ministry. But it sometimes gives people the impression that if their family is less than perfect, they themselves might not even be Christians. You know what I mean? You get that impression sometimes. If, you're, if your family, your life, whatever, isn't absolutely pristine, perfect, uh, airbrushed, you know. Uh, and, and in the Bible, that's just, just, just not true at all. He uses dysfunctional people. He uses dysfunctional families. It's a fallen world. The only perfect person is Jesus. So bear that in mind as we look through this, because it's far from a perfect situation, and yet God is still at work. The child grew and was weaned, verse 8. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, now she does doesn't even call him by his name. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. And it's a play on words. ESV uses the term laughing. 
NIV, I think, uses the term mocking, and that's really the proper way to understand what's going on here. There's some sort of ridicule, some sort, Paul calls it persecution in Galatians 4, referring to this verse. The pressure of Ishmael, who is about probably between 14 and 16 years old at the time this takes place, and little three-year-old Isaac. Sarah sees this. So she said to Abram, get rid of this slave woman and her son. And really in Hebrew, that's what it is. Get rid of her, cast her out, kick her out. I want her out of the nest. This actually happened earlier too in chapter 16 when Hagar first got pregnant, if you remember. And Sarah, and she, and Hagar made fun of Sarah back then and was thinking, I'm the queen now. I'm the one with the child, Sarah. And she looked down on Sarah and lorded it over her and so on and so forth. And Sarah said, get rid of this woman. You remember that account? This is very similar. Um, 14 to 16 years later, the same thing happens again, which means the tension in this home has been there the whole time, probably. It's probably just... Functional, dysfunctional the whole time. And polygamy, by the way, was always dysfunctional (laughs) every time it took place. So what we have is the eruption of this family crisis, but underneath it is a very important theological point. Is the salvation of God going to come through humans making babies, or is it come through God doing something miraculous apart from human inability and human failure? Do you understand that? Now, that's super important. That's really the reason this is here. So she says, get rid of this woman. Uh, Because, and this is the key, see, her son, uh, cast the woman out uh, with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not, and underline this if you care about the theological point, shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And that's the key, the heir. Who gets to be the firstborn? Will Abraham's name be shared between these two? Will Ishmael be called the firstborn? And Sarah says, no way. And that's a very important thing. It's not just that she's headed up to here with Hagar uh, and Ishmael. It's that she sees the importance of the line coming through the miracle. Um. And this thing was very displeasing. Verse 11, this thing is very displeasing to Abram on account of his son. Uh, which son? Ishmael this time. Abraham cared for Ishmael. We don't know anything about his relationship with Hagar. But we do know he cared a lot about Ishmael. And, uh, and this, it says displeasing in the ESV. Um, there's several different translations depending on what, which translation you're reading. Gordon Wenham, who's a very well-known uh, Old Testament exegete theologian, he renders this, Abraham exploded with anger. This Hebrew term is a very strong term. It says displeased, but it means more than just being, oh, I'd rather this didn't happen. He's, he's very upset. It involves a lot of internal turmoil with him, and he's, pr- he's, pr- he's probably thinking, women... Sarah, this was Sarah's fault in a lot of ways and Hagar's fault in a lot of ways. And Abraham is caught in the middle uh, from for the last many years because of this situation. No offense, sisters. Life has fallen and relationships are difficult. And trauma happens. And Abraham hears Sarah say, you got to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham is torn. One minute he's so glad Isaac's there. The next minute he's just torn up on the inside. And he probably would not have done it if God hadn't either appeared or spoken to him in some powerful way. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, The Lord said to Abraham, verse 12, God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she tells you. A verse favored by so many of our wives. (laughs) Just write it, you know, put it on the refrigerator. Just the first part, right? Whatever she tells you. Now, but look at what the Lord says in here again. You know, we laugh about this, but the theological point is really important for the salvation of the world. Look at this. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
So Sarah wasn't a theologian, but what she was saying, she spoke better than she knew. And Abraham is just thrashed internally by this. But then the Lord comes to him and he says, um, no, she's right. This has to be done because Isaac is the one I promised. Uh, and promise becomes really important. And he says, I'll take care of Ishmael. See verse 13. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. I hear your prayer for your offspring. I will, I will take care. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Once again, see how quickly he obeys. He gets up early the following morning. He took bread and a skin of water, which would be a couple of gallons of water, and gave it to Hagar and put it on her shoulder along with and sent the child with her, uh, Ishmael. He sends him along with, uh, with the things and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And Beersheba gets its name in this chapter. It's the southern portion of, of uh, Israel, just on the edge of a great desert between Israel and Egypt. And if you go to Israel, Beersheba is actually a pretty sizable town in, uh, in southern Israel right now. And if you ever go there, they have the place of this well that we're going to read about in a minute. And uh, it's, there's an archaeological dig there and everything. And then there's a sizable modern town, Beersheba, in Israel. So he, uh, so he, but in those days, it was the southern part of, of uh, Canaan, the southern part of the Promised Land, right on the border of the wilderness, meaning the desert. Okay, And so he sends her... Out. I want you to see that the Lord uses this human stress. We, we tend to think I got to avoid all stress. You can't avoid all stress. But what you can do is say, I got a stressful situation. How can I relate to it faithfully? I can't fix it. How can I relate to it faithfully? How can I navigate it faithfully? This is what Abraham does. And the stress is hard. But he says, I will do what the Lord has revealed to be done here. And, uh, and the Lord sort of rescues, this is all God's doing, you know. He's rescuing the promise from being, com- with, from competition with Ishmael. He's rescuing the promise, the seed. He's also rescuing Abraham because by telling Abraham this, it takes the decision off of Abraham. He probably couldn't have made this decision if God hadn't have made it. And that's a kind of a rescue for him. And then notice in verses 15 to 20. He rescues Ishmael and Hagar, and you'll notice in the last part, he blesses Ishmael with a wife from Egypt, exactly as he said he would do. Look at it in verse 15. The water in the skin was gone, and she put the child under one of the bushes. It says child. Um, the Hebrew word can mean a young person, so that's what this is. He's, he's 14 to 16 years old, and they, and they were wandering around not knowing even though, had she remembered, God had told her when, uh, when she first got pregnant that God, that he would make Ishmael into a great nation. He had told her that back in chapter 16, we saw it. Uh, you kind of forget these things when you're thirsty in the desert, right? So she leaves her son under a bush or under a tree, and she goes far enough away that she can't hear what he's saying. She puts him under one of the bushes. Uh, Verse 16. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of this boy, this child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God brought the voice, God heard the voice of the, the boy. And the word cry doesn't simply mean uh, weeping. Uh, the word cry that is used here of the boy means crying out to God, which means at some point along the line, Ishmael himself must be crying out to God. He's praying. And notice, God hears the boy. I mean, we see her crying, and we would think it's heard that God's going to talk to you. He did that in chapter 16, but that... I mean, he is talking to her, but you would think that would be the cause. No, he hears Ishmael uh, crying out to God. And you know, when people are on the verge of dying, 
Never underestimate the power of death to bring people to some sort of faith in God. Never underestimate that. If it weren't for that, if it wasn't for that sense that I'm, I'm afraid of dying, so many people would never think about God and they'd spend eternity without him. So you cry out to God at moments. That's what happens. And he hears Ishmael. I've heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? This is a rhetorical question. He knows full well what's troubling her. What he wants is for her to think back. Wait a minute. The Lord did say that somehow I would, I would see a nation come from my son. What, what, why are you in the state you're in here, Hagar? Fear not. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast by your hand. Go, go get him, take your hand in, take his hand in yours. I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And, of course, they lived through this. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, which is the desert area down to the south of there. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. She had connections. She was Egyptian. She had connections back home. And so she said, I want my boy to marry somebody from my side of the family here. And the Lord blesses the entire thing. And let me point something out. You really have an interaction with God at the deepest level when you are in the desert and at your wit's end. Why did he not show her the well ahead of time? Because she wasn't crying out to God for whatever reason, and neither was Ishmael, until... They were at, the, at their wit's end. Now listen, friends, God works in those extreme situations that just crush you from the inside, pull you down into God's presence, and he hears those prayers. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen. he does hear the prayers of the crushed and the brokenhearted. And oftentimes, when we're not crushed and brokenhearted, we kind of get full of ourselves, which feels kind of good. And we get kind of intoxicated with ourselves. And the Lord says, this person needs to lose their fortune. I'm going to use some extreme things to draw this person into a much deeper, more blessed reality. And that's exactly how God still works today. So take note. God is doing all this. He fulfills the promise of Isaac. Then he focuses the promise through Isaac while at the same time taking care of Ishmael and using a completely dysfunctional family and all the stress that's in it in order to bring about something good for eternity. That's just marvelous about the providence of God. Now he ensures a place in the land for Isaac. That's the next thing that takes place, verses 22 to 34. Um, and, he, and there's a, a deal that uh, Abraham and Abimelech uh, Abimelech is a title, by the way, not just a name. So there's a couple of guys named Abimelech. Uh, and you've seen one from last time you were here uh, in the previous chapter. We're going to see more in the future, another name. Abimelech is a title. It means uh, uh, my father is the king, but it, uh, the Philistines used the name for their kings. So at that time, verse 22. Now this is all going on at the same time. Do you ever have more than one crisis take place at the same time? Don't forget Abraham and his clan, and it's a sizable clan. He has, he has like 300 guys that are trained soldiers in his, in his outfit. Okay, so he's probably got hundreds and hundreds of people that rely on him. He is a, even though he doesn't own the land, he, he has a huge presence in the land. And that's why Abimelech comes and says, and he brings uh, Fikal, the, the commander of his army, and they want to make a pact with Abraham. Um, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the, the commander of, of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. You know, people do tend to take notice if you're walking with God. Sometimes they don't like it. 
But there's a purpose in God letting it be known that you belong to him. And in this particular case, it makes Abimelech say, this is a big deal. We need to have a peace pact. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants. See, that? that's very important. That means this is multi-generational. And that's what's going to happen because Isaac needs to have a permanent place in the land that God promised. So there's a seed in the land. This is fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, of course, Abimelech doesn't know that. He's not reading the Bible saying, I'm going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. God is working behind the scenes to make sure that the promise is fulfilled. So that's what's going on. And so Abimelech says, we got to promise each other that, that this is multi-generational. We have peace with each other. And with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with me and with the land where you have sojourned, that means living but not being a citizen, sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear to it, I'll make that peace pact. And then Abraham reproved Abimelech. This kind of, this kind of tests the whole thing because their, uh, their guys are arguing over a well. And in those days in that part of the world, if you don't have a well, you don't live. Okay. So these were very big property, uh, disputes about whose well is this. And this, this well comes back into play again in Isaac's life later. But, um, at this point, uh, uh, Abraham reproves Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So Abimelech also has a lot of people working for him, and he has an army as well. And uh, and some of his guys just said, "Well, we're we're just going to take this over. We're going to nationalize it. This is our this is our land, and uh, and we're going to nationalize this well." And they seized it. And Abimelech said, "Hey, wait a minute! I didn't know that this thing was done. I didn't know my guys did this. Uh, you didn't tell me, and, and and I've not heard of it until today." Well, we don't know, you know. Politicians lie. You never know. You never know. But he claims that he didn't know anything about it. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Now, this is the covenant of Beersheba. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Abimelech said, what's this? What's the meaning of the seven ewe lambs? That you set aside here. And he said, these seven lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. If you take, if you take these seven lambs, then that means you're agreeing I dug this well and it's mine. And what Abraham is doing here is he's saying, this well stays here and so we can graze our sheep and so Isaac can live here. And Isaac did live in Beersheba most of his life. Okay? So it's the land promise happening. And um, and there'll be a witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place is called Beersheba, the well of the seven, or the well of the oath. Can, in Hebrew, it's a play on words. And that's how Beersheba got its name. Because this is where both of them swore an oath, verse 31. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and then Abimelech and Phicol, his uh, commander of his army, um, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord. Now, this is very important. Here, you go through all this whole thing, and now he's calling on the name of the Lord. He's worshiping. He's worshiping the Lord in the midst of this. Uh, the Lord Yahweh, that is, in the original Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned, underline the word sojourned, many days in the land of the Philistines. So see how the promise is fulfilled. God, God promised that there would be a seed. He promised that, it, that the promise would only come through the seed, the promise of salvation, and that it would take place in this particular land. And uh, God keeps his promises. Um. But take note, and we'll come back to this in just a second. Take note of the two times that it says that Abraham is a sojourner here. He doesn't actually own the land, but he has a permanent presence in it. And it's a presence to be reckoned with. 
So what do we learn here? Well, take note of this. Isaac is the picture of God's grace in action. When you think of Isaac, don't think of him just as a baby and everybody's happy to see the baby. He, he, he is that, of course, but, but he represents God's grace happening in history in time and space to bring about the salvation of the world. He's the seed of Abraham, and from him comes, of course, the nation itself, and out of the nation comes the Messiah. So when you think of Isaac, think of the grace of God. Isaac is really the representative, and notice that God preserves the grace. He won't let anything mess with it. He won't let it be diluted. It has to be this gracious thing. And that is the first of a couple of things I'd like to share as we get ready to close here. Um, what do we learn? I just mentioned Isaac is the picture of God's grace, which means three things. The Lord saves us based on his promise, which is the same as grace, not based on our obedience. And that means your life doesn't have to be perfect for you to be saved and used by God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God uses crackpots, actually. <laughs> Cracked pots, but that's us. A bunch of crackpots. And we, we try to pretend that we're just a lot better than we really are. But take note, in this situation, because of this promise, it has to be the promise and not the fact that Abraham was such a good guy or, or uh, Sarah was such a beautiful, wonderful woman or anything like that. God says, I did this because I want you to understand that the Lord saves based on his promise, not on our obedience. The obedience follows the promise, not the other way around. And that needs to be uh, borne in mind. Secondly... Well, because of this, because he saves based on his promise, and Paul really pulls on this, and we'll see the verse in a minute in uh, Galatians. Therefore, point number two, the obedience that we have doesn't earn salvation. It comes because we trust God. You can tell if a person trusts God because they try to do what he says. You can tell if a person doesn't trust God because they don't care about what he says. And a person who does trust God, if they find out they're not doing what he says, they feel horrible about it. This is an indicator that they actually belong to him and he's convicting them or whatever the case may be. But take note that because the grace comes first and that it issues in obedience, therefore, the obedience doesn't actually earn the salvation. It's the evidence of it. And it's because they really trust. Um, Travis, I think Travis quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer a couple of weeks ago. And a very famous saying by Bonhoeffer, uh, only those who believe obey, and only those who obey believe. You can tell by how people live whether or not, they're, whether or not they really trust God. Now, the word believe and the word faith and the word trust are all the same word in Greek in the New Testament. They're all the same word. So we take the Bonhoeffer quote, only those who trust God actually obey his word, and only those who obey his word are really trusting God. Do you see how that works? So, and we see this. Abraham is a classic example of it. He's used by James in the book of James as an example of this. He really trusted God. It wasn't that he had faith in faith. He didn't have faith in faith. He had faith in the Lord. And when the Lord said something and he knew that's what he was saying, he said, okay. Even if it was very difficult for him. And it, w it is difficult. Sometimes when the Lord says, the step of faith I'm asking you for is not a step forward, it's a step back. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? A step back from taking care of Ishmael and Hagar, which he had done all these years, or to release someone you love into God's hands, and that's a step of faith. It's kind of a step back. It's stepping back from the situation and saying, I cannot control. God is the one who must take it from here, so to speak. Even though at one time I had this responsibility, now I see that it is not any longer. The Lord says, I will take this. That is a huge step of faith. And the, and the people who are able to release perhaps loved ones or circumstances into God's hands, 
That's a huge step of faith to do that, to say, I trust you with this, Lord. And that's exactly, that's why Abraham is the archetypical man of faith. He really trusted God himself personally. So the Lord saves based on his promise, not on our obedience. But then the obedience actually happens because we trust him. We obey not to earn the salvation, but because we really do trust God. Do you you really trust God enough to do what he says? And to not do what he says not to do. This is how we grow. This is the test in our faith all the way through. Here's the third thing. And we see ourselves as redemptive. And here's a word we use around here a lot. As redemptive expats in a fallen culture. Redemptive expatriates. An expatriate or a sojourner. Same original word uh, in Hebrew and Greek is what we call an expat. That's a person who lives in a place but doesn't own it. They are part of the society, but they're not completely enmeshed in the society. And it's odd to be this. If you don't believe me, read First Peter chapter 1, the first couple of verses. In the first couple of verses, he calls the Christians um, chosen exiles or chosen aliens. And go, what? Exiles, aliens, what's that about? They're expats. Chosen by God to live here and not own it and not actually have citizenship in the place where you live in. That's why this whole big thing about the Abimelech Treaty and the, and the existence of Beersheba. Abraham was a sojourner. Remember, see that last verse that we looked at? He's a sojourner. He's an expat. And we learn from that, according to Hebrews 11, we learn in First Peter 3, that's what we are in a fallen world. So if you are thinking through what this all means to us, think about the salvation that is by grace as a promise, not based on your obedience. Think about you wanting to obey because you decided to trust God. And think about the fact that you're different from the world and you can feel it more and more and more. And you feel like an alien in the world. And you do feel like an alien in the world. We as Christians across our nation, one of the one of the big trials going on right now, one of the big tests of faith, is that so many Christians are feeling a little less at home in this culture. And it's freaking them out. And uh and some of them are a little angrier than they need to be because if you don't understand you're an expat in this culture, no matter where you live. If you lived in another country, you would say, well, I expect to be an expat. I'm, I'm living in another country. But when you live in your own country and you feel like an alien in your own country, you know what that makes you do? It makes you ask yourself, do I belong to the kingdom of God or do I belong to this country first? Do I get a bigger lump in my throat when I sing the national anthem or when I sing Amazing Grace? Can I be salt and light in my world and still love my nation but realize I belong to the kingdom of God? Yeah. So let me mention a couple of things. Because we live in a a political society right now where Christians are really struggling with this. Let me give you some pastoral advice based on this expat idea. I'm so glad for this section here because it reminds us that we are sojourners. And that's a good way to live. If God says you're a sojourner, then that's a good way to live. And if you don't feel, um, if you don't feel like an expat, then something's wrong. And it's probably that you're too comfortable in the world. The world is just, you're so much like the world and the world is so much like you that you don't feel all that different from the world around you. And that is a difficulty. Because the Apostle John says in chapter 2 of John, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. And he means don't lust after them. Uh, don't let that be your identity. You're different. And you have to accept the fact. So if you don't feel like an expat, something's wrong. But if you also don't feel like you can be redemptive in the world, something's also wrong. Because some people say, well, I'm an expat, so I don't care about the world at all. And, I, and, I, and the world can literally go to perdition, and I just don't care. Just, just I'm going to hunker down and keep myself to myself until, I, until the rapture happens, which I hope happens today. And, and, and forget everybody else and forget trying to be redemptive and forget being salt and light. And that's also a problem. You see the two extremes? The two extremes 
So you say, well, what, what is this? Am I, am, I, am I part of this world or not? Yes. Yes. Because you're an expat on purpose. Abraham was a person who didn't own the land, but had an impact on the people who did own the land. And he would, and get this part, it's really important, he would eventually inherit all of it, and that's true for Christians today. They will eventually inherit all of it, and that's in Hebrews 11, verse 11 and following. No time to go there right now, but that's just wonderful to remember. You will inherit it all someday, but right now, you feel weird. And you feel different, but you want to be salt and light in the culture you live in. This is an amazing chapter, is it not? Chapter 21 of Genesis. Look at God's promise. Look at the focus of the promise. Look at the land promise. The fact that he's at work in all these things, saving by grace. Not making us earn our salvation and teaching us how to live. So how do you trust God today? You trust by trusting the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. I want you to, we'll close with this verse. I've done it before when I teach in Genesis. Turn to Galatians 3. I'm just going to read it and pray for me that I don't preach it because we do need to go on to the luncheon and, uh, and talk to Carol. So go to Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, of course, knew this account well, and in Galatians 3 and 4, he taps into the very story we just read to explain the difference between coming to God with your works, which he refers to Hagar, Versus trusting his promise, which he refers to Sarah, okay? But I'll let you read that in Galatians on your own. I want you to look at chapter 3 of Galatians. Uh, Verse 18, look at that verse. If the inheritance, and he's talking about the inheritance of eternal life and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. If the inheritance comes by the law, the Torah, it is no longer coming by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do you remember how often promise comes up back there? And God says, it has, you have to trust the promise. You can't trust your deeds. Verse 23, skip down to verse 23 in Galatians 3. Now, that, now before faith came, we were held captive under the Torah. And it means faith in Christ, the work of Christ. Imprisoned until the coming faith would reveal. Look at the number of times faith is used here. Imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. Uh, the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. That's declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, just circle all the times he uses the term faith, like Abraham, see? But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're in this new covenant. That's why we took communion this morning. And by the way, we have a baptism in two weeks on the weekend of Thanksgiving. If you've given your life to the Lord or you are giving your life to the Lord, Sunday right after church, be baptized. That's what he's referring to here. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's why there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's. You are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, expats, but heirs, according to promise. And what that means is grace. Did I, go, did I give you too much to chew on? Are you glad to be a Christian? Yes. To be a part of the promise? To know that God is at work in your life? Because you'll notice in here, he does not fail to keep the promise. And he draws you straight into it through Christ. His love never fails. And all God's people said... <laughs>